0: welcome to passion fruits podcast the passion project for passionate people i am your pomegranate person adam and my co-host is your concord grape daniel Nice, Uh,
1: (laughs) you you too buddy
0: (laughs) well done so so uh uh what do we do on this podcast daniel
1: Well, Adam, we talk about subjects that we're passionate about, subjects that our guests are passionate about, to really get to that kernel of knowledge to figure out how you go from being a casual fan to a fanatic. Was it some inciting experience or some inspiration that just... Flew by you on the highway. What made you so passionate about the subject that we're talking about on each episode? Were you yeah. going to say something? Oh, I was going to take a breath.
0: I was going to say that, you know, with that kernel of knowledge, hopefully we're the microwave that bursts that kernel of knowledge into a juicy <laughs> piece of popcorn. Well, we are. <laughs> Jeez, uh,
1: I thought you were going to go in like a military direction and say we are the uh, the generals that ferry along that kernel of knowledge all the way into ROTC and beyond. Mm. Um, but that makes as much
0: sense as, <laughs> as, as, as this entire podcast. Knowledge. Yes. <laughs> uh, with that being said, uh, yeah, we please. are incredibly happy to have yes. a a friend of the podcast. Uh, uh, a north carolina native uh artist industrial designer david bolfin uh david would you like to introduce yourself
2: yeah uh i don't have a fruit uh so i was really impressed with pomegranate uh so (laughs) i feel like i'm gonna have to think on the fly here um man i don't know i'd have to say i don't know kiwi sounds good i guess no alliteration though, so that's kind of a bummer.
1: No, please, David, I appreciate it. Alliteration <laughs> is uh, the crutch for the beatnik
0: poet. So, <laughs>
2: oh man,
0: this is uh, th- this whole this whole episode is just going to devolve into a debate around alliteration <laughs> right. or not, um, uh, David. I'll,
2: uh, already.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so David, we're here to talk to you uh, about your current career as a as an industrial designer or as a product designer. Awesome. Like, how how would you how would you uh, describe or, or what do you what do you say you do? What what is your role? <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a really really solid question. So what's fascinating is like whenever you say industrial design, like the most common you know, eyebrow raise you get is like, oh, so do you you design factories? Mm. You're like, oh, do you, are you making like, you know, buildings that make stuff? Well, no. And um, (laughs) so what's interesting is industrial design is kind of this beautiful hybrid and collision of uh, that intersection between fine art and engineering. So as a discipline, design is like beautifully neither and both. And so it requires uh, this really delicate balance between right and left brain, between being highly creative and highly analytical, and ultimately applying uh, design thinking strategies and creative thought and creative problem solving to crafting and creating the manufactured world. So lots and lots and lots of people are familiar with kind of this creative and technical intersection as it relates to architecture you know you think of a building as you know more than simply you know a domicile or a container of people but it's also this beautiful work of art Mm -hmm. Um, the job of an industrial designer is to literally do that with everything so literally everything that is man-made every toothbrush every commercial aircraft Every laptop and cell phone, every article of clothing, literally everything that is created by mankind is the result of a series of deliberate decisions. And sometimes those decisions are good and sometimes they're very poor, but no matter what, nothing is manifest. It's all originated from a series of decisions. And so it's the role of an industrial designer to take those decisions really seriously
0: so there's a lot to unpack there David.
2: <laughs> yeah so David- it's <laughs> scary because it changes your worldview like once you know you're like oh no someone had to start with everything on a on a piece of paper and then it, it kind of you can't look at everything else the same anymore it's so i'm sorry it ends it, and it's <laughs> like an atom bomb on you know the way you start looking at the space you're even sitting in which can get really scary
0: yeah, so what we're going to do, we're just going to have five minutes of silence for our listeners to kind of right. digest that.
2: <laughs> and realize that they're surrounded by manufactured goods.
1: <laughs> David may be too deep for this dumb, dumb podcast. No. <laughs> I, I, was, I was having an existential crisis <laughs> just sitting in my chair. <laughs> like, which one, goodness. Which, your,
0: your chair, which an industrial designer probably oh, helped no, design. No.
2: <laughs> yep, undoubtedly.
0: Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I work in a world of product management and product design and product marketing, David. So, so it's interesting, the more, the, the deeper I've gotten into my career, the more I've able to kind of associate it with what you do. Um, and that's that's primarily because a lot of my job requires a lot of interaction with, you know, really core product managers, uh, uh, kind of user experience researchers, uh, reg, you know, designers in general. Um, and, you know, heck, the our, the last episode we had, we had uh, uh, two graphic designers slash motion graphic designers on who talked about kind of how, how they got started. Um, can you give us a... a- No, you said you know the the traditional way of thinking is or the traditional intersection that most people default to is architecture but you opened it up to everything so Mm -hmm. what can you run us through a a quick example of of something that maybe an everyday item that people don't think about that you may have worked on or that you know an industrial designer had a had an influence on
2: if you will oh absolutely and um so I'm very lucky and very proud to have had like a really diverse uh kind of career up to this point. So it means that I've had the opportunity to touch a lot of different items and industries. Um, so my background is actually in car design. And so that's like a really hmm. great, you know, top of mind item to think about, you know, that requires, you know, the very steady hand, if you will, of an industrial designer. So, you know, when you think of an automobile, you know, there there's it's that quintessential, you know, form and function coming together, right? Hmm. Is, you know, it has to be comfortable. It has to function. It has to be able to have a certain level of fuel efficiency and speed and performance and, you know, accommodation of, you know, individuals body sizes, but it also has to be beautiful. It also has to be evocative. It also has to be, you know, an article of desire. And so that's like a, you know, perfect kind of encapsulated example of, you know, how industrial design influences a thing. Um, cause if it was, if you leave something like that solely in the realm, um, of fine art, then you may or may not have something that is, you know, functionally really well engineered and incredibly efficient. And on the flip side, if everything stayed totally in the realm of, you know, strict engineering practices, you know, you may end up having a really sleek aerodynamic wedge, but mm-hmm. it's completely like a boring, you know, Prism, if you will, and there's really nothing else that evokes the spirit. Are, so, are you
0: calling out the Cybertruck uh, by Tesla, <laughs> David? You know,
2: you know.
1: Oh, you heard it here first. <laughs> you
2: know, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying out. to be very cautious and careful with my speech here. So, I actually I have very much feelings about the Cybertruck, mm. and this is coming from someone that even loves Tesla a good bit. Um, I have a deep, deep, deep love, hate relationship with that design. It's like, I love it because it's extremely controversial. Right. Mm. And, um, and right now I think we're experiencing in a lot of ways, a dark age in car design. Mm. Um, you know, there, we don't really have a lot of exceedingly daring avant-garde things, um, because it's kind of become really a wash with marketing, right? It's like, Mm. We're focused so hard on hitting that 50th percentile because the modern car, the margins are too small. They're just really, really small. And so for a company to Mm -hmm. make a profit, they have to appeal to as many people as possible. It's why everything's a crossover, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's like everything Mm -hmm. is a crossover because no one's doing anything wrong. It's just what they have to do to stay solvent. And so I absolutely love the Cybertruck question mark air quote <laughs> <laughs> and um, because it's like I said it's really controversial and it's really divisive and uh, and so for that I think it's to be lauded um, but it's also just really really ugly <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm actually you know I'm I'm embracing the controversy by saying you know I don't like it I don't hmm. like it But I love it for being what it is. I love it that it exists. And I think Hmm. it really should exist and it needs to exist, if nothing else, than to have this conversation and, you know, push the industry towards a more daring direction. You know, it's like if there's a business case to be made and someone's going to buy one, then by all means, I would be I would enjoy the delicious morsel of being wrong. Um, (laughs) I do not like it, but I'm really excited that it's here.
0: Like and uh, David, I had to tell you, but your job offer from Tesla I just got.
2: I
1: was going to say, David, check your driveway. We bought you a Cybertruck.
0: <laughs> oh, what a delight! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's
1: super <laughs> on this. <laughs> I
0: mean it's it's so interesting that you bring up automobiles david and we we're, we're we're going to dig into your love of automobiles here in a little bit uh, mm-hmm. but it, it's a couple things stood out stood out to me about what you just said is you know your consideration for why design is you know why design within the auto, automobile industry is uh, rather boring these days is due to kind of the business strategy associated with the automobile industry, and that's something that you don't often hear from, kind of the core artistic side of uh, of, of of our. Society, if you will. So, Mm. your and and to sum up what you do, it's it's not just it's not solely just the combination of form and function Mm. uh, from a user consumption standpoint, but it's also you know taking into consideration you know for perhaps you know will this sell like who's going to buy this who's going to enjoy this who's going to uh, who is going to desire this Uh, like Mm. all these different decision points that. Um, quite frankly, you no. Know, I, I wonder how a pair of headphones gets out the door without it being, you know, analyzed into oblivion.
2: <laughs> kind yeah, of, kind of. Thing. Yeah. Hmm. To deviate maybe just like a tiny bit, or like almost like redirect. It's like from where I sit, it's like the the greatest role is one of an advocate, hmm. and um, and so it's like there's always going to be when you're creating something for manufacture, there's going to be you know, the manufacturability concerns, you know, has to be able to be made. There's always going to be, you know, these market segments that you're trying to hit because, you know, some entity of business has a target in mind that they want to have a greater reach in. It's not so much that I would ever ignore those things Mm -hmm. or not find them important because they are, they definitely are. Mm. But there's a lot of that. There's a lot of people who spend a lot of time money energy and vision trying to decide predict and you know forecast what people want and while i'm definitely a part of that narrative and a part of that story the most important thing to me is to be an advocate for the person mm-hmm. because sometimes that's the first thing that goes missing is you know you can market something as something all day long whether or not it is that thing is another matter entirely, you know, and that's also modern living. Right. Hmm. So what's where I feel very, very lucky and very responsible and, you know, passionate, you know, just to, to borrow the word for, you know, the subject of the podcast is, you know, is that role of advocacy is really, really critical is, you know, when there's a sales goal and there's a marketing goal and there's all of these agencies in play that are coming from a place of profitability and wanting to sell something to a wide audience, I'm the person that cares about the person that's going to spend their hard-earned money on said object <laughs> and for them to get the best experience out of it for no reason other than they need to feel cared for by the things they buy. And I also need to care for the larger economy and the larger world in the production of those items. With uh, every client, with every consumer and every project I've ever engaged with in my career, my first question for them is always the same. And it always has been, um, who are you and why does this thing deserve to exist? Because most things don't really deserve to exist if you really get down to it. Mm.
0: And we're going to pause for another five minutes to, for our listeners to, <laughs> to ponder another. that as well. <laughs> it's like throughout this next hour, we're actually going to discover the meaning of life.
2: Right. <laughs> oh, no. No. no,
0: no um, sorry, Daniel, you were about to say something. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh,
1: I was going to say the meaning of life is 42, but oh, um... that's,
2: that's what they say, right? Yeah. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> So, David, I, I think that was a wonderful introduction to why, you know, kind of kind of introduction to industrial design and why you do what you do. But I, I we also want to, you know, step back a little bit and sure, we, you know, we we want to get to know you and how you came down this path of you 'cause, because you know. Uh, we were we were joking around with our last podcast guests <laughs> along the same lines of like, you know, who grows up and, you know, in in the second oh. grade, it's like, I, I want to be an industrial designer right. for, for my career. Oh, yeah. um, so so walk us through, you know, how did you get into product? How, how did you get into this, you know, starting, you know, with, in your childhood, were you especially, were there activities or things that drew you? uh, that you were drawn to, um, h- what, what did that look like as you, as you, uh, started out, if you will?
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, you're asking a great question. Cause you're right. Like, you know, it's, um, like, you know, you, that kindergarten mentality of like, you know, you know, basically I call it like, you know, the, the public servant question, right. You know, it's like, Hey, do you want to be a fireman, a policeman or a mailman? You know, it's like yeah. the, <laughs> right. the own careers when you're like five. So, <laughs> Yeah, industrial design definitely doesn't fall on that radar plot at all. Um, so, what's interesting is it honestly, like, there's, I don't think there's anything else I could have ever ended up as. Hmm. And what that means is it makes for, I think, a lot of challenge and head bumping along the way. You know, I think, if, you know, in almost like in this kind of very typical, you know, and, you know, not begrudgingly, but, you know, but just kind of normalized idea of, you know, you're, more right brain or left brain, you're a little bit more creative, or a little more technical. And you know, just from a schooling standpoint, we typically funnel kids, you know, or typify them in one direction or another, right? Mm-hmm. And um while that's changing quickly, you know, like, but certainly, you know, when I was growing up, this idea that um you could be deeply and inherently multidisciplinary you know was still kind of a challenging concept and especially if you're a kid you don't even know what that even means right <laughs> so i think i spent a lot of my childhood years being kind of honestly like really lonely and really kind of introspective and and kind of sad mm. which is a bummer but i think there was still reason for it like um like a lot of kids who you know end up becoming artists, designers, engineers, and the like, you know, I spent a lot of time drawing and creating and making, but, um, I feel like I got in trouble in art class a lot, like literally, like even in elementary school, because I never wanted to do whatever the assignment was. It's like, I just wanted to draw objects, you know, it's like, Hey, like draw the, you know, the sunshine in the top corner and the blue sky above and a tree. And like, it just, I just didn't, it just didn't interest me. I was interested in trying to figure out why the chair I was sitting in was uncomfortable and wanting to draw something different. And so I just wanted to draw things and I wanted to draw, Mm -hmm. you know, objects and articles. And for me, it was like an escapism and it was a a desire and a hunger to like imagine a world that was kinder, friendlier, you know, more welcoming than the one that I was usually experiencing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that creativity was a beautiful source of escape. It was a beautiful source of survival. Um, but all this time uh, you don't know that you're a thing, you know, it's like, well, I'm not an artist and I'm not, you know, a mathematician and I'm not a, you know, fireman, policeman, mailman, you know, so you just, <laughs> you literally just don't know. And so right. not having the term industrial design is huge. Like missing that, Missing the phrase, missing the definition, when the truth is, it's kind of what I've always been, Hmm. was really, really weird. And so, you know, people used to say, oh, David, you're probably an inventor. But like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's not an actual job, you know. (laughs) No, it is. It totally is. But it's like, you know, you're thinking you're six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, you know, and you're just like, I don't think that's what my parents are talking about when they're saying getting a job someday. And you just, you just don't know. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I got bullied a lot as a kid because I was always, you know, wanting to talk way more about new ideas and things that didn't exist yet, rather than what was happening in the present. And I think Mm -hmm. that made me, you know, aloof. And I think it made me hard to connect with. And so, you know, I'm not necessarily absolving every bully ever, but Thinking back, I can at least, you know, have enough self-awareness to, to understand and recognize that, you know, I was I was playing from a completely different rule book. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, so what's crazy is I don't know if you guys have both grew up in North Carolina, but, you know, there's this fateful day in middle school, I think, mm-hmm. where you know, the North Carolina public school system basically says, all right, it's time for you to choose your quote unquote career path. Hmm. And, um, and it's kind of this loose, you know, amorphous definition of, you know, how the rest of your public school education is supposedly going to be catered to your future. And it's a, you know, it's, that's a noble purpose, sure, you know, but like, you know, you're also in seventh grade. And, right.
0: And you know, you have, you, uh, I believe that in the seventh grade is when you're fully formed as a person. Right. You have everything figured out. Uh, so I don't, I don't really know where you're going with this, David. you know, critiquing the North Carolina public school system, but you no, know, continue, continue. We'll cancel you later. Don't worry.
2: I have actually a deep respect for my public school education, believe it or not. In fact, like I am forever indebted to it for mm. the amazing things it taught me you know, but some of those lessons were taught intentionally and some of those lessons were taught unintentionally, you know, public school was incredible for me, you know, getting that cross section of society, you know, getting Mm -hmm. to interact with so many people who were so unlike me, but the concept of being fully self-actualized in seventh grade is, is definitely a weird one for sure. (laughs) So on said fateful day, when all this happens and, you know, and I've spent, entire life to that point, basically doing a thing because it made me feel happy and excited and optimistic about tomorrow, but I didn't know it was a thing. And so it, this is like almost like a cliche story, but it, I swear to God, it's actually true. They give you this like giant book. It's it's like this encyclopedic tome of mm-hmm. every known profession in the universe. And you're supposed to like pick from the book and write in the blank, you know, what the job is that that, that you're gravitating towards. Right. It's a completely worthless exercise, right? You know, because again, (laughs) like, you just don't, and I mean, and I, I recognize the, the attempt. And so I remember being very angry that day. And Mm -hmm. I remember being very like upset at this idea that, you know, this hell if I know idea and it doesn't matter anyway. And this almost fatalistic attitude, you know, not off to a great start. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I literally just picked the book up and threw it open on my desk and just, I was like, you know, the first thing that I, my eyes fall, on, I'm going to write down because it just doesn't matter. This is a ridiculous waste of everyone's time. Sure enough, truly like I threw the book open and I looked down and my eyes fell on industrial designer hmm. in this, crazy book that my seventh grade, you know, homeroom teacher handed me and I just looked at it and I read it and I basically was pretty much in tears on the spot. And it was for no reason other than it was the first time anyone anywhere had ever been introduced this idea that I was something. Right. I was a thing because I didn't feel like I was an anything, you know, mm. for since basically forever, you know, it's like, I like, I'm not a thing. I don't know. I'm, there's not really a definition for whatever it is. I am basically from that moment in history forward, I was able to say, Oh, I'm an industrial designer. And mm. right now I'm just a kid, but it means that I now, for the first time ever, I think I have an objective goal. And so it meant that like, knowing that which made me very very fortunate very very lucky unfairly so right uncharacteristically lucky to be able to from that moment forward um have something as a target on the horizon and so i still hated school and i was still lonely and i was still bullied and all these things were still true but like i I now knew that there was something that I was. I'm like, Oh my gosh, if you're a person that draws things, cause you think that they should be better and you're trying to imagine a future that doesn't exist and you want to make the things that fill said future, that's an industrial designer <laughs> and it completely altered, you know, my self identity and the trajectory of my life literally from seventh grade, which is absolutely absurd. And so basically, yeah, yeah. You know, I was really deliberate, you know, regardless of how I felt emotionally about anything else. Like I was very deliberate to say the decisions I'm going to make, I'm going to make with the intention to be either aligned or misaligned with this idea and goal of being an industrial designer.
1: I can imagine that being like a huge, and like you kind of alluded to it, but like a huge kind of weight off your shoulders, especially at that age when, I mean- granted you weren't like immediately thinking about going to college at that point but like but to be like you know kids with their parents who are lawyers or architects or doctors or um, policeman or firefighter or like whatever like i can imagine just having that definition would just be a huge weight off sounds uh like like a very like epiphany type moment. That's very interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like it was watershed. And then what's fascinating is it's like, you know, you just have so much growing to do after that point, right? It's like, it's not like, awesome, you know, mission accomplished, you know, (laughs) I've I've cracked the code and now (laughs) I feel like I'm a person. You know, it was really, but it was like this gasoline on a fire. You know what I mean? It's like now I at least had something I could research. I had something that I could learn and realize that it's like, I don't like that. You know what I mean? Because that's just as important. Right. Sometimes more important than knowing what you like is knowing what you don't. And so it meant that, you know, I could chase and understand, you know, what all the different disciplines of engineering were. I'm like, okay, what's a mechanical engineer? What's an aerospace Mm -hmm. engineer? What's a chemical engineer? And then realizing like, nope, nope, that that still plays. I think industrial design is still where I want to be. And Yeah. yeah, it was just able to create this filter and... You know, basically, yeah, like a checksum that I could measure against when thinking Mm. about how I saw myself in the mirror, what I wanted to be and how it was I wanted to contribute to society as a whole,
0: and that's that's fascinating, David. And obviously, you built up quite the portfolio of work thus far. But how did that look when you were in middle and high school? You know, what were yeah. you were you actively contributing or consciously just contributing to what you would consider your portfolio, or or were you were you in that exploratory phase until you got to college and your your yeah. freshman advisor was like, "Hey, if you want to do industrial design, you better <laughs> put together a portfolio, kid." How did that direction or that, uh, kind of epiphany, uh, dictate, uh, your, your free time and stuff in yeah. middle and high school. What, what did that look like?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it definitely shaped it for sure. And what's, what's interesting is, you know, is like once you're a hungry brain sponge, you know, you, you just need to fill it and absorb, you know? And so it meant that I ended up learning a good bit about what a portfolio meant, you know, by the time I was in high school ish. And what's interesting is, again, this is certainly not an indictment of education. I said, I'm deeply, deeply proud of where I come from and how, Hmm. but, you know, sometimes design schools, when you think at the collegiate level, you know, these are, these are really intense places and they're extremely selective places. And so in my case, you know, I'm a, an alumni of the College of Design at NC State, a -hmm. place that I hold in truly the highest regard and I'm so, so happy to have come through and been produced outward from. But what's interesting is that the admissions process to get into design school is one that you have to prepare years for ahead of time, Mm. years, literally years And so, and this is for admissions. This is for admissions. This is not, you know, hey, you're going to become a designer because we're going to teach you. That's going to happen anyway. But to really even get the opportunity to get to the point where you could be educated, you have to prove the type of malleability in your mind that has to be of a certain X factor. Hmm. So I started my quote unquote, you know, I'm doing my finger quotes here on behind the mic, right? You know, like my portfolio, I started my freshman year of high school because I had to, because there was no other option. And so the Mm -hmm. idea was, is if I wanted to go to a, to college, if I wanted to become a designer, if that really was a goal, it meant that with no education and no experience and no one really, you know, showing me the way, you know, other than, you know, loving parents and, you know, teachers who took specific and special interest, you know, Mm. both of which, again, very fortunate to have. But yeah, I I was 15 when I started my quote unquote professional portfolio because there was no other option. If I didn't have that, I was never going to even get the chance to be educated. Wow. Hmm. And um, and so, again, you're kind of out here on the bleeding edge by yourself in a ways, you know, trying to think about what do I fill a sketchbook with? And all I ever came back to over and over and over again is like is to listen and to see, you know, you can't solve a problem unless you hear it well and you see it well. And so if nothing else, I just became, you know, an aggressive student (laughs) <laughs> of the world and its environment so that I could look for fascinating problems that I could try and crack. Yeah And um, you know so it's like in high school I was you know uh, a lifeguard, you know is like my you know part-time job after school and things like that. And mm-hmm. so I would constantly you know sketch and draw and experiment and make models with all sorts of like rescue equipment for mm-hmm. lifeguards. Cause I realized that most of it was utter garbage and it actually could mean <laughs> people would die, hmm. you know? And so there was all sorts of these like quote unquote unofficial projects that just lived in my sketchbook all the way back from being like 15, where I was basically looking at the way that we were conducting water rescues and realizing that this intersection of the protocol of the rescue and the equipment used in said protocol, both could be better. And it's like, oh, my gosh, like we're taught this way for these reasons. And they're all really sound. But wow, like the people are having to carry the brunt of so much scary stuff. We need to be asking our devices and our tools and our equipment. It needs to bear the brunt of that responsibility Hmm. or at least more of it. And so, again, that's kind of the light bulb moment, you know, just like, oh, my God, that's how everything should be. Right. That's really how everything should be you know, Hmm. man-made things need to bear the brunt of responsibility to do the jobs they're assigned well. And so it was basically that logical step to just keep looking at things around me and realizing that, oh my goodness, I think this could be better. Hmm. And ultimately, yeah, that informal, you know, poorly sketched, poorly drawn, poorly executed, you know, portfolio was was my bond that, you know, was allowed me to kind of enter into the collegiate world, you know, mm-hmm. without any technical skill or background or education or experience. <laughs> wow, and right. yeah, but it's literally like for many, many, many young designers, that's, that's really the only way. And so right. every school is a little bit different, but yeah, it's like, you kind of have to come in with some sort of evidence, a body of work, a sense of proof that, you possess a mind that can be shaped and grown because, Mm. you know, you can, you can teach technical skill all day long, you know, to give you the tools to do things better. And you can, of course, also refine and strengthen all these critical thinking elements. But there was like, there was this somehow this strange notion, you know, the, of the tiny pieces, these little elements that supposedly you don't teach that people just need evidence that you're thinking about the world in a certain way so that they'll take you as take you on as a serious candidate to be taught.
0: So you, you entered into NC State, you know, North Carolina State University's, you know, College mm-hmm. of Industrial Design, you know, how would you, are, are you like, is your psyche, are you like the, the not average, but are you kind of the, <laughs> what what people think about like among your peers in that, right. in, in your program, was it all, was it a bunch of David Bolf like, a, a bunch of Davids like running around being like, yes, oh, let's, let's sketch out, let's sketch out all the chairs and redesign everything oh. in here. Like what, you know, and, and kind of to that point, you know, when you went to college, did you feel like you finally landed and found your peer group?
2: Mm. Yeah. So mixed answer actually. So, so one, absolutely. I felt like I, I felt like I'd come home um, when Mm -hmm. I kind of got to, to university. Um, But with that, it didn't mean that everyone looked like, sounded like, behaved like, or thought like me. In fact, Mm -hmm. it was so vitally important that they didn't. So it's like, you know, we had a really diverse group, you know, split male and female, you know, split, you know, widely varied racially, Mm-hmm. Widely varied politically, and it was just this amazing crucible of, you know, all sorts of creative ideologies and backgrounds and, you know, mm-hmm. family structures and upbringings and childhood struggles. And it was this this white hot, yeah, like I said, furnace of all these different individuals. But they were all bound by this, you know, again, almost fire, you know, to just create something better. Mm-hmm. Um And so in a, in a huge way, I had absolutely found my people, but it had nothing to do with them, you know, being the quote unquote, same, you know, demographic as me, you know, even ideologically, you know, these were, these were people that became my family and they were wildly, wildly different than I was, Hmm. but it's like, there was, there was a really deep connection on just what I just said. You know, it's like, we were there because you know there was something in us that had been stirred that you know we need to learn how to become people that do this well because how else is anything ever going to change yeah and <laughs> and so it was really that idea that yeah so it's a dichotomy so it's like very very different group you know super super diverse in every imaginable way and then at the same time you know it was You know, after leaving high school and after leaving kind of small ish town, North Carolina life, you know, it's like I immediately felt welcome and I immediately felt seen and I felt like, you know, it was like this very fast merging onto the highway of trying to understand myself better Mm. through the lenses of all these disparate personalities and it was a lot of fun, you know. I mean, it was it was really, really excellent. You know, the yeah. the studio life, if you will, um, ends up becoming you know a really powerful experience of like shaping one another through those through those things. You know, through that mm. creative creative lifestyle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Like what you know, making that transition from kind of aspirational industrial designer in middle and high school to you're in this program, you're super jazzed on it, you you know, there're all manner of stimuli and kind of projects coming at you. How did you transfer that into, you know, did you just, you know, senior year, did you just start googling, you know, industrial designer, <laughs> right. you know, positions? <laughs> right. What did that look like to to where you were in college to where you are now?
2: Yeah, brutal. Um, <laughs> so Uh, I graduated in the year of 2010 Mm -hmm. and so post 2008 collapse Mm -hmm. was basically, it just decimated the design world Mm -hmm. Um, because every year it gets better. And to this day, things still continually get better as far as design awareness, you know, as like a fundamental value to everyone. Mm -hmm. But even so it's sometimes the first thing to get sliced You know, if, when things get tight and so Mm -hmm. basically job wise, everything got obliterated post 08. And so even two years later, you know, looking at graduation in 2010, it still felt like a wasteland. Like, even though, like I was part of a group that was really driven, really smart, really talented, really well-educated, um, you know, I was not unusual. I think, you know, most of the people I was in school with, you know, we would apply for 50, 60, 70 internships and get 50, 60, 70 notes just to work for free. And hmm. that was completely par for course at during that season, you know, just to like be out in the world and, you know, had this deep desire to, you know, obviously do what I wanted to do, but I also needed to pay the bills. I basically, you know, started my career as, um, a network engineer and basically flamed out because I wasn't a network engineer. <laughs> so yeah. basically like within a year I got laid off and it was, uh, the completely right decision for the company, like hundred percent, the right call, <laughs> you know, to <laughs> lay me off. And, um, you know, which is like a hilarious thing to think about, but it was also, you know, it was still like a huge gift to just, you know, get some professional experience and be out in the world and make a paycheck, things like that. But what was interesting is, you know, being, you know, still really technical on that end of the spectrum was a huge plus to kind of like getting my start. Hmm. So. Rewinding back to college just for a half moment, you know, so I always really enjoyed, uh, the company of engineers, even though I wasn't one, hmm. but I always really, I loved my design family, no doubt, but I was also with them 24 seven. And so thinking about, you know, the, the rest of the, you know, 24, 25,000 people on NC state's campus, you know, I had all these other friend groups and most of them were engineers. Um, Cause you know, they were over on that far end of the spectrum that I was soundly in the middle of. Mm. So I figured out that I really enjoyed the mechanical engineer folks and I really enjoyed the aerospace folks too. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up joining a, uh, the formula SAE team, which is a race car team in college. So it's like oh, a, yeah. you know, a collegiate race car team and you, know, and you design and build race cars and compete against the other schools.
1: <laughs> That's awesome.
2: Oh, it's crazy fun. And so I was odd man out. Mm. And so it almost felt like being back in high school, (laughs) you know, because all of a sudden I was like, I was the weirdo because I was the one that wanted to make the race car a certain way and a certain thing because I had this, you know, very holistic mindset. And then now I was swimming in this ocean of Mm. aerospace and mechanical engineers that, you know, were applying, you know, all this really beautiful, rich book smarts to it. And, you know, to make a great race car. So I got addicted, I got completely addicted to it. And I made it kind of a a goal while I was there to basically, you know, contribute in a meaningful way at any cost. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, um, and so what I ended up doing is even though I wasn't an engineer, I would I just learned the math. And that wasn't my major. It wasn't my expertise. It wasn't even my passion. But, yeah, you know, I made it my business to basically, you know, meet them in their space and meet them on equal footing so that, you know, just to almost like earn some respect, you know, just be able to learn something for myself and um, and contribute. So I ended up basically learning as much as I could about aerodynamics And uh, chassis and suspension design, blah, blah, blah. And basically was able to become one of the chief uh, chassis and body designers on the collegiate race team. And so it took some time to get there, but basically ended up, you know, just fighting, 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 fighting. You know, being the only weird design student kid on this engineering team and finding a way to really connect with them, learn their trade and you know, use my experience, background, in education with innovation to kind of apply that to their world and create something really new and exciting that ended up, you know, being really successful against the other schools. Huh. So honestly, it was that that unlocked kind of the start of my proper design career. Huh. So after being laid off from the networking company and realizing it's like, yeah, that adds up, you know, okay. <laughs> and, uh, that
0: tracks. That's all brand. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. That plays, that plays. I can I completely understand where they're coming from by no fault of anyone's. And, um, that I literally ended up getting cold called, like literally got a voicemail, um, from like a small aerospace agency, you hmm. know, outside of Charlotte that said, Hey, do you want to come down here and design race cars? And, huh. um, Cause I mean, cause it was on my resume, right? It was on right. my, you know, huh. it was on my resume. Hey, I did this thing formula C, blah, 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 you know, background. <laughs>
1: Sorry, David. I love you saying, uh, earlier you said I worked on, uh, becoming an expert in chassis design and suspension, Design, blah blah blah, and then now you just saying blah blah blah. I'm just over here, like, all right, hold on. What could the blah 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 be?
0: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just weird. like you're very <laughs> you're very casual about your le- your areas of expertise. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. okay. Right. No aerodynamics, you know, aer- you know, uh, aeronautical design, designing race cars, you know, you know, melding melding feel, you know, form and function. You know, things that are you know historically our society hasn't been able to do for thousands of years it's okay blah 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 whatever i'm just i'm just back at
1: the beginning of the episode glad that i came up with concord grape and still thinking (laughs) of you as kiwi
0: david
2: (laughs) 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 no yeah you'll have to forgive the catch-all yeah it's it's like the attempt and often failure at self-awareness of like you know how far in the weeds do we really want to go
1: no this Uh, is fascinating
2: (laughs) yeah so So anyway, so that's kind of what led to like the start of, you know, the, the proper kind of formal industrial design career. And, um, and so even at the previous job, I ended up designing a bunch of network equipment because I would literally crash meetings that I wasn't invited to and just said, (laughs) like, you know, you know, Hey, like, you know, I'm doing this job. I I might not last. And I didn't, (laughs) but Hey, while I'm here, can I help you make this better? And so it's, fascinating is like, even at that place, you know, I already had built my design resume because I ended up taking some products to market, basically just volunteering on other teams inside this large corporation by literally showing up where I wasn't invited. And, um, and so like that became professional experience, even though I couldn't really claim it. And then I had this collegiate experience led to this. So then basically I packed up and, I had literally just gotten married. Like, so I had literally gotten laid off two weeks before my wedding, which was, you know, just deliciously emasculating. And, um, <laughs> but it was a really beautiful part of the adventure, right? Like, you know, we were depending on one another right out of the gates. And that was like right. a really, that was like a true source of beauty in our relationship. Mm. So we packed up our life, moved to, you know, Charlotte area. I started work at this aerospace agency and basically, while my primary role, you know, was technically on paper um, on the motorsport team, you know, designing race cars, the the secondary portion, you know, the thing that "quote unquote," you know, paid a lot of the bills, so to speak, you know, in aerospace was a lot of like uh, military development, and so that ended up being a really valuable introduction to some things that were exciting for my career for me to just gain understanding gain experience you know be you know a contributing problem solver but it's also hard too because sometimes that work gets messy and right. uh you know for for lack of a better term right and so i had a i had a real like deep 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 love hate relationship with the with the work and it's like you know when my reason for being is to you know make the world a better place and to you know imagine the items that need to fill the future that that's complicated right and um there's there's a real difference project to project during that season of my career because just literally every single project you would feel different about ethically like there are some things that I worked on there that until the day I die, they'll be some of the things I'm most proud of ever hmm. because of concrete design innovation being used to save lives, right? It's just amazing. Like, you know, I'm, I'm so fortunate to be able to say that. And then on the flip side, there was other things that would literally physically turn my stomach and there's nothing you can do about it because it's your job. Sure. And you would just lay awake at night trying to think about like, Oh my gosh, like, well, you know, I'm a problem solver and this is now the problem that's on my desk to solve and I'm going to solve it but to what end. You know, it is just it's a very very nuanced, very gray, very challenging industry that just takes its toll. And so, you know, it was just there was just just this polarity. You know, there was work that I was wildly proud of that was super exciting, super fulfilling, super challenging, you know, bleeding edge, high technology, advanced development and, you know, still being design-minded and being able to put my fingerprint on something that really mattered. And then you would literally bill another set of hours to something that was like, oh, my heavens. You know, it's like, well, this is now going to leave my brain and my ability to apply creativity to something. And I now don't have control over, you know, the broken human nature that is now going to use this technology to for something. Right. And I well, just and hope it's only for good.
1: We, we've kind of... Adam mentioned the last episode we had our graphic design episode, and we kind of got into that a little bit with the our guests Mark and Ray, who talked about being on projects like working with a company that their beliefs weren't didn't align with, yeah. you know, their beliefs, and you kind of just have to separate what you have to do in your job, it's and you- also. Yeah. And also not have it affect your mental state during your work, but also not have it affect like the actual work that you're putting in there. Like you are, like, as you're saying, like there may be a very specific reason for what you are creating that may be like it has to be successful because if it's not successful, you're not doing your job. Exactly. And it may completely also ruin the other parts of the design that tons of other people have worked many many hours on that may be doing the exact opposite of what your design is doing that's separating the design from the designer yeah, it can impossible. be extreme exactly it, like it is almost literally impossible to do sometimes and nobody nobody would think like you hear industrial designer, and then like you have to give the definition you get gave earlier, and, and then like, clear. yeah. If like if that person hasn't walked away to go get more hors d'oeuvres at the <laughs> dinner party you're at, <laughs> then like you can't really start talking about your work that kept you awake at night. It's <laughs> Otherwise, funny. like, sorry, this is very oh, fascinating. Thanks,
2: man. <laughs> I appreciate it. There's lots and there's lots of lefts and rights, no doubt. And yeah, and it's yeah. funny too because you know. Just, you know, as a designer designing, too, and believing very firmly that it's so firmly in the middle, you know, this fine art and engineering, mm-hmm. You know this right brain, left brain, you know, literally 50-50, and it's a weird place to be, you know, it's like all the work is highly emotive as well. You know, it's like a lot of what I just described, you know, a lot of that is kind of like really... You know, harsh development, if you will. But then, like at right. the end of the day, like it still mattered to me. Did it have an aesthetic? How am I crafting this article because it has a job to do, and I now have to think about the person using it. You right. know, those things really matter. In and, and in cases where, especially the the item of question is a matter of life or death, it, it almost mm. matters even more. You know what I mean? And right. So for me, it meant the ergonomics really mattered, and I loved it. And Mm. the aesthetics really mattered and I loved it and the creative problem solving and, you know, being able to have this like, you know, skunk works or JPL or NASA mindset to solving Mm. problems. You know, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then, you know, you finish it, everything up, you put a bow tie on it, you send it out the door and you're just like, all right, I just really hope that, you know, the care and kindness and compassion I put into creating this thing. Someone will take that seriously when they have to do a very, very difficult job. Right. You know, those ideological challenges, you know, is ultimately what started me looking in a new direction. And, mm. you know, forever I will be indebted to and grateful for that chapter of my career because it sharpened like every single one of my creative knives. You know, It meant that, you know, for the rest of forever, you know, I could really felt, feel like I could go toe to toe with any engineer because I had to. I literally had Mm. to, if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to work. And so, you know, during that period, I basically, very much like the Formula SA team, like at nights, when I was in that job, you know, I studied aerospace. And so I ended up, you know, just downloading, you know, just PDFs and PDFs and PDFs of like textbooks and things like that. And I would literally stay up late And even though I was, you know, a trained car designer who liked to create beautiful drawings and, you know, and what mattered to me really a lot was my sketch hand. You know, it's like, is my arm loose? You know, is my, is the physicality of my sketches looking good? And at the same time, I would stay up late at night studying orbital mechanics Hmm. because I wanted to be able to go to work the next day and understand what the conversation was about and contribute to that conversation when the time was right. It unlocked you know, and tickled all these extra nerves that just frankly, it just made me a better designer mm. and, you know, and it helped me, you know, when I transitioned to the agency where I'm at now, which I've now been for many years.
0: If I may bring it back up a little bit, I think it shows just a really, really Grand amount of innate curiosity that you have, David, especially when it applies to something you like or you're interested in. We we want people on here that can talk for hours about why they like something and all you know the the myriad reasons that oh, yeah, they that fold. they think about it.
1: Um, <laughs> just go back to our episode talking about making hamburger steak <laughs> with Will. <laughs> it's exactly like this episode. It is just as deep as this episode. <laughs>
2: Guess, you know you signed up for. It is what it
1: is. I mean, he's going to get upset <laughs> at me that I called on. it hamburger steak and not hamburg steak. So I, my apologies, Will. No, uh, no, I come
2: by it honest. So the, uh, strap I, in. <laughs> I, I,
0: I think this this transitions us really nicely into this. You've explained it all along about what makes you so passionate. But really, I, I also want to know, or we also want to know um, mm-hmm. just more examples of you know what do your what does your inspiration come from and i'm gonna i'm gonna plug something here real quick too david is i remember the first time i met you um you mentioned that you had a you know you were a skateboard designer and i was like (laughs) who the who the f is this guy like (laughs) (laughs) like like what and and you were this enigma of, of a person oh, no. and i was like no no no, in, in a good way because i was really intrigued i was like all right so this guy's you know he's interested he's asking about bi- asking me about bicycles like he likes cars he like design escapes like who who <laughs> is this person um so so with all that in mind David, yeah uh, yeah you've <laughs> applied this love of, of industrial design or, or design and this combination of engineering and design into a lot of different hobbies so so, David, as as it relates to design and kind of once again, kind of that confluence of design and yeah. engineering, uh, talk to us a little about, you know, your love of cars, your love of skateboards. Uh, mm-hmm. wh- what and, and, and then on, honestly, I want to segue that into a little bit more around uh, your free time and the art that you're doing as mm-hmm. well.
2: Yeah. yeah thanks man yeah so yeah i'll try and touch on all so yeah i mean like definitely was involved with you know and still am you know with like modifying and kind of tuner stuff you know in the car world and i'm on my fourth miata and there's a reason like lots of uh you know, like kids growing up yeah like just you know was really fascinated by you know taking your car and doing something really weird with it and so yeah all the miatas i've had have all been highly modified you know and uh and it's something I really, really enjoy. And uh, so really big on, you know, practical performance, too, in addition to the aesthetics. Like, I love the confluence of that. Like, to me, that's a really design-oriented hobby is cartooning Like, that's a really design-oriented hobby because, you know, it's there's such an aesthetic to it. Like, there's such an aesthetic to, like, you know, uh, a Japanese domestic, you know, tuned car. And, you know, there's a certain, you know, visceral visual snapshot you're trying to create. And you're also trying to make it your own, put your own stamp on it. And at the same time, you know, you don't want to be a poser either, you know? So it's like, you know, everything (laughs) has to be substantial and backed up by, you know, it's got to have teeth. So I've always loved, you know, trying to like constantly find that balance of like building something that's really, really honest and, you know, and really analog, you know, it's like my Miata is still naturally aspirated. Um, which means it's slow. <laughs> so it's really slow, but that's kind of part of it. Like, you know, right. it, but you know, it'll out handle anything because I've spent all my time, money, energy on handling, hmm. which they already handle well. So um, I'll say this there's there's no greater, you know, jolt, you know, psychologically or physically than like, you know, being able to put down a better lap time in something with, you know, roughly a hundred horsepower versus like you know a corvette that's got four times that like there's a certain delicious you know morsel there that I've always loved chasing
0: and so like that love of speed and that love of, of um incremental gains and you know I think once again if we take it back to this this whole idea around your skateboard designing um yeah, you know I can, I can definitely talk, talk about that yeah, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that and and what you know how, why (laughs) of of, of all, of all the things that you could kind of, you know, throw your artistic, uh, your, your, your design brain at, what was it about Hmm. skateboards?
2: Well, I think it's like so many other things that I've found that I really enjoy. It just has to be this perfect, like knit together tapestry of like really high aesthetic value and really high technical value. Hmm. And a really good skateboard is that to me. So something I realized was that like most, you know, skate startups, it was really more of like a branding exercise. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like we're going to create this brand. It's going to be a lifestyle brand. We're going to shell T-shirts and we're going to do the artwork on the deck. But it's like there wasn't really necessarily any sort of like new ground being dug on how the decks themselves were constructed Mm -hmm. um, and what you're actually getting out of it. Now, generally, right, you know, it's like most typical skateboards, like you know, a dual kicktail kind of like street board. That's kind of evolved to be something that's almost commodity these days, and that's not bad. That's good, right? Because I mean, they undergo unbelievable wear and tear. If you get into this world of like high speed, high performance downhill, like in like longboards, mm-hmm. this now I realized was a really really fertile ground. I basically got hooked on longboards from my college roommate who seeing as how we were in design school and we had access to something like, you know, half a billion dollars worth of shop equipment, 24 hours a day, we basically, you know, got into making skateboards together just for fun as, as a hobby. So we learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes and broke a lot of boards and gotten a bunch of trouble, you know, all in this pursuit of making a better skateboard. But mostly it was exploratory. You know, it wasn't necessarily always like trying to break completely new territory of uh, performance. So that's what I wanted to do. I basically wanted to say, okay, how do I create a brand? How do I artistically engage and do all the artwork myself and do something that's aesthetically really appealing, both from the sculpture of the board itself, you know, all the way from just the cuts and the profiles to how the trucks are mounted to you know, the level of concave, the the different types of three-dimensional contours that make up a board, all of these are beautiful decisions. And that's not even getting to the graphical artwork, which is also exciting. So it was this confluence of really amazing things. And then I realized like, wow, like, so one, I get to tickle all these different parts of my brain. Mm-hmm. I get to do, you know, graphic arts, which is always exciting. And I get to do branding, which I love to do branding. Mm-hmm. And I get to do, you know, technical design because, darn it, I want to figure out a way to make the downhill skateboard, whatever it is now, I'm going to make it something it's never been. And so it ended up being like this fascinating little like, you know, one man startup situation where, you know, I basically like so many others, right? Like kind of built this ad hoc company in my garage and just made gazillions of skateboards and tested out different materials and techniques and processes and tried to do this. And so one of the things I realized was like, you know, you've got this column A of the brand and the artwork and all of the stuff that was, I love doing, like, it was so exciting. Like I was doing all these like really cool, like bright, high contrast, really intense graphics that, you know, felt clean and crisp and modern. And so it was like the anti-grunge, you mm-hmm. know, so a lot of like the, you know, the skate brands, you know, particularly in the street kind of market, right? It's like it ends up being like, I don't know, like just like really grungy for lack of a better term. I'm not really right. sure. the, the best adjective, but I wanted something that felt almost like more high design. You know what I mean? Like huh. where it was like not quite minimalistic. You know, it was just crisp and clean and you know, very much tapping into that surf culture, which that idea isn't new, right? Long boards tapping to surf, surf culture is not a new idea. However, like continuing to elevate it into something that was you know, graphically really unique, you know, just to be really crisp, really clean, really modern, really sleek, um, you know, was something that I wanted to bring to it that was very much my own. Over in column B, um, I wanted to, you know, challenge everything we knew and understood about how to make a wooden skateboard. And so to do that meant I had to press them myself. So I literally learned the process of making skateboards from dead scratch literally by cold pressing layers of veneer. Hmm. And so this meant, you know, learning glue layups, which meant that, you know, to prevent cracking, I wanted to, again, I wanted to be better than anything else I'd seen. So it meant I ended up partnering with old school friends in the chemical engineering department at NC State, and we ended up developing a proprietary adhesive. So we basically (laughs) built a better better wood glue. (laughs) So we built a better wood glue that would flex and bend at the same rate As wood, 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 hilarious, (laughs) that it wouldn't ever delaminate, you know, so you could jump up and down on these things and they would never delaminate because the glues fully cured elasticity matched that of the lumber, which was really special. And so that was unique to my board. And then at the same time, I also wanted to take the lumber really seriously. So I ended up getting an import license so that I could import exotic wood veneers from the subarctic areas of Canada, because the trees that grow in the northern climes have to fight the weather and fight the climate, which means that the wood grows slower. And at the cellular level, if you look at the wood under a microscope, all of the, the structures of the wood are actually more tightly packed, which means that yeah. pound for pound, it's stronger. And will bend farther before breaking basically became really intense about who I was importing from. And I basically made it my business to say, if it's not above a certain geographical latitude, I'm not buying it. Wow. (laughs) Because I realized and figured out that it mattered. Right. So I did that and I paired it with a proprietary glue that was really, really exciting and then I started developing new contour shapes that basically would structurally alter, you know, the the properties of the board, how it flexes, how it bends when you ride it under load. But at the end of the day, I basically was able to create a line of high-speed performance longboards that basically if they were equipped with the right trucks, bearings, and wheels, like if they were outfitted correctly, they were basically really excellent all the way up to 80 miles an hour, you know, when you're... Wow. Doing like really hardcore, you know, right, bombing mountains and things like that. All those crazy YouTube videos you see, that's what they were for. You know, it was, it was they were perfect for this really discerning customer that, you know, if they're flying down a mountain, they need to feel really good about what's under their feet. And so that ended up being my business. The Gosh. problem was, is that, you know, that gets expensive and, in Charlotte, I wildly miscalculated the market for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so basically, I had to shut my doors in 2019, you know, mm-hmm. as kind of a, a beautiful uh, and poignant failure, if you will. But I'm a huge fan of beautiful and poignant failures. So um, I will st- I'm still going to be making skateboards for probably the rest of my life to some degree. But I think it's probably going to be more one-offs and you know, and I'll sell a few here and there. You know, to folks who are really, really interested. But that's uh, awesome. We,
1: Gosh, we that's we all, amazing.
0: Yeah, we, we all have those labors of love. Perhaps not like building a <laughs> highly cut, high, you know, highly <laughs> specified, you know. Ultra high-speed longboard company from the ground up, but you know, <laughs> uh, I guess, uh...
1: Adam, I'm already taking notes. Uh, we're making our longboard company tomorrow. <laughs> awesome. well, this is this is all advice. just a uh, this
2: this, this is about fifteen years worth of experience on. right. Gosh.
0: <laughs> uh, step one: acquire import Canadian import license for hardwoods. <laughs> <Right>. Um <laughs> David. Sorry, uh, Daniel, did you have a, did you have a question?
1: I'm just like sitting here again, having like another existential crisis of like (laughs) that longboard I rode in high school. Like there was some guy who did exactly what David was doing. Like,
2: Uh, uh, and this occasionally happens like, um, right. So it's like, you know, my, my wonderful wife, who's just unendingly, you know, patient, right. Like, (laughs) you know, to be in relationship and, um, it's like, and that's a big thing. So she's like, she's been completely anesthetized, to, like to say that, like, she now, <laughs> she's gotten used to seeing things through my lens. Right. You know, which is fascinating. You know, and so she's just like, she'll, she's now a, a, an amazing expert. You know, it's like, I now ask her for advice constantly. She's always perfect for that perspective that, you know, is outside my own. But she has, you know, lived life alongside me now for such a long time that like, you know, I can really trust it because like she's been fully indoctrinated in this, you know, in the in the terrible moment of, you know, your world melts down when you realize that, oh, my gosh, everything around me was created. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's funny to hear that. So it's like because you're right. You're right. Like it's 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 a cataclysm. It's a cataclysm. Yeah. You really wake up to the fact that like nothing is manifest. it, it makes you both love and hate the whole world a lot more like in equal rate. Right. You know, it's like you, you almost, you now hold everything to a higher standard because you're like, Oh, that was a decision. Why did they, make that one then? You know, <laughs> and it's like, you know, it means you have like a lot less patience for things that are uncomfortable. You know, it's like if I sit in like, you know, a really terrible piece of furniture, like it, it makes me irate. It makes me absolutely right. irate because like, I know that that had to go through X number of years of development And process to arrive somewhere, you know, and, but it makes me really frustrated to think of something that you have the capability of spending real money on buying can arrive to you as a person that should be cared about and it's not good or work right, or it's not pleasing. When I design something for me, it's a, it's a way for me to concretely show compassion to someone else that I don't know Hmm. because they will never meet me. They will never know me. Probably ever, 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 but I want them to know that they're important to me and that they're cared about because they are in possession of something that I designed, That that is vital to me because it Mm -hmm. matters when you spend your money on something and knowing that what you're really creating is the artifacts of tomorrow's landfill, you have to Mm -hmm. take that seriously. And so for me to actively combat that, actively spend my own personal emotion energy, innovation-centered mindset on combating that, making the best possible thing so that by the time it reaches garbage, you know, it's done right by that person. Right. You know, and so that's, that's a change in worldview, right? Like, and so that's where it's almost like, Sorry, not sorry. So I understand the (laughs) mind blow, but it's like, (laughs)
1: well, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it takes a
2: while to soak that one up.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's, but Adam was, you know, we were getting to it and kind of talking about how you go from being an industrial designer to the artwork you're working on and doing and what you're doing in Charlotte with your artwork. Um, Let's dive into that because I would really love to hear more about that and kind of, Because looking at your um, Instagram and your shop and your portfolio that's online, like you can clearly see what you're talking about in the work and the artwork that you've done. Um, But yeah, what kind of led you into that artwork? What is your inspiration in your artwork? Um, And yeah, let's kind of talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, gladly, man. Yeah, gotta love the podcast—the perfect visual medium, right?
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is like, yeah. Again, after the graphic design episode where we were like, let's describe visual stuff.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing! I love it. No, well, yeah, you're happy, happy to talk about that because it's it's of course very much what's uh, you know in my present these days, and it's been right. exciting. Um, so the artist moniker is, is a scary one. Mm. It's a really, really scary one. And it's one that I've almost like run from for most of my life. Cause it felt very like high minded or self important, or I don't know what you want to call it. Like it just, it, mm. I don't know. I kind of almost, I felt like, you know, if I call myself an artist, it feels like I need my pinky out right. you know? and, and that's just one that's not me. And two, it's not even, it's not what I want to be either, you know, so it's both. And so I've always been kind of frightened, frightened of that label because I think as someone that has created as a way to put bread on the table for, you know, my whole career, you know, for some reason, the, the definition of, you know, changing from artist to designer, to artist felt very scary, but Mm -hmm. I'm learning that that's not true, which I think is really, really beautiful. It's, it's, you know, learning to. You know, a- accept that as a, a generous, generous gift from other people mm-hmm. as a label. So, where the artwork has come from is basically what's kind of exciting. Is like, an, it's almost like another mini self actualization story again. In a way, mm-hmm. is I've been doing this for years and years and years, but I never showed anyone. And I think it's because of that, you know, kind of low simmering, you know, fear of that label, where it's like, you know, like, ah, you know, I'll do. I'll do graphic design or I'll do, you know, illustration. I'll do things for my own, my own means, my own projects. Like, you know, obviously on the bottom of every skateboard I ever made amongst other things. And, you know, for years I've painted, um, I don't paint as much as I would like, but I do very much enjoy it. I (laughs) very much enjoy, you know, photography and, and things of those nature. Um, but the current kind of artistic adventure has been really, really special because, it's something that I've enjoyed for a very long time, but I've, it's never really been something that's been in the public eye. And so this, this past year, really, all of that changed. All of that changed. So again, like being sensitive to the fact that, yeah, we're podcasting and all, it's like to describe the work. Basically, my thing, if you, whatever you want to call it, is that, you know, from that designer's mindset, very much see a lot of very rich and beautiful aesthetic everywhere in the mm. created world. And I think that goes unnoticed for all of the reasons we've talked thus far, right. For all the reasons we've talked about, you know, there's our entire constructed world is one of hopefully intentional aesthetic and occasionally unintentional, but it's there. And so almost just as like a, you know, a geek nerding out about things, you know, it's like, I just love the, the natural beauty of things that are made and trying to kind of like call that out, You know, just in a different way. And so basically what I do is I basically do illustrations that signal and highlight um, predominantly, so this is not exclusively, but predominantly um, man-made things that are extraordinary, sometimes by being actually extraordinary and sometimes being extraordinarily normal. So, you know, sometimes they have extraordinarily emotional connections. Like, for example, I just did a really beautiful illustration of um, the camera that my mother used, like, for my whole childhood. So I have lots of really strong, potent memories of her, you know, documenting life using this particular old Pentax 35mm film camera. Yeah. So... For me, it's like an exercise in understanding and in slowness, you know, so like for that particular example, you know, it's like I had to spend days and days and days just Googling down the Google black hole, trying to figure out what the model number was, because all I have is a childhood memory, you know, (laughs) really all I have is a childhood memory. I was like, I think it was this brand. I think it was this shape, and like, it's not much to go on, but basically trying to figure out what was this thing and then being able to find images of it and then. You know, virtually I like to take things apart. And so what's fascinating is every single one of my artworks and every single one of my illustrations begins life as a three dimensional digital CAD model, you know, so mm. CAD for the uninitiated, you know, is computer aided design, you know, it's, it's, you know, a, a three dimensional digital model, right? For all these things, I basically do these really bright, vibrant kind of editorialized illustrations of, of potent and powerful human artifacts to make them beautiful and elevate them in their beauty simply because they deserve it you know hmm. it's like that that simple pentax camera is is unremarkable but then as i researched it was actually very remarkable It was one of the first consumer cameras in the 80s hmm. that you know had autofocus capability for a point and shoot you know available to general consumer and all of a sudden you're like wow this is incredible like yeah. That's an amazing piece of technology that I was totally invisible to me at the time. And you know, now it's like, wow, this is actually a fascinating little piece of history in this and something I can read about and nerd out about. And so then I literally build a three three D CAD model of it. Like I literally build <laughs> it. I literally build it, the whole thing from like from scratch. And I do that basically just out of love for whatever the article is. <laughs> you know, so whatever I'm doing, like just to show it respect, show kindness to show almost a sense of like a nod to the original designer of whatever this thing is. Hmm. I try to almost like remake it. And it's basically from that remaking that is like the starting place of my illustration. So I do all this 3D work that again is invisible and unknown to my viewers. And then basically I then compress it like a projection down into the 2D. And now it's like a painting. And then from there is when I start to, you know, really get excited about color and composition and you know creating something that's truly like you know optimistic and hopeful in its palette and its aesthetic that you know almost feels kind of sort of in this beautiful ether gray area between traditional fine art and technical illustration right so it's like it's not a blueprint but it's also not a painting you know, and it's like they exist in this perfectly interesting space in the middle of the two to where, you know, it's it's really beautiful, you know, when it's hung on your wall, almost regardless of what it is. But what's actually happening is I'm celebrating something that's really exciting to me. Um, you know, as something that we have made through a series of design decisions. And I get to pay it great respect and observation by remaking it from scratch myself, just out of, you know, reverence to it. And then turning that into a composition that is completely my own and basically becomes my own personal editorial on whatever that subject is. All this, again, was my own practice <laughs> that no one yeah. knew about. No one knew huh. about it being afraid of this artist label and, you know, just having this be something that I like to do. And all of that changed last year um, with this program called Art Pop. Art Pop is this really kind of cool nonprofit organization that's in multiple cities kind of along, you know, along Eastern seaboard. And their thing is that they basically try to identify local artists in a certain city space And basically, they collaborate with outdoor advertising companies, predominantly uh, billboard owning companies, Hmm. and basically using unsold space or donated space, you know, this is actual money towards giving those spaces to artists as basically a public, open, free uh, community arts project. Hmm. So basically they do these, you know, art contests and it's juried and whoever ends up coming out the other side of that jurying process for this calendar year, you get a billboard and your billboard has your artwork on it and it has your name underneath it. And it literally is just on that billboard for a 12 calendar month year. And it's basically this unbelievable affirmation. And it's this unbelievable kindness and generosity because, you know, when you really sit down, you know, this is hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of ad space. And I ended up applying this past year to this art pop program truly and actually on a whim because I had done a particular artwork that felt really, really, really important. And that one in particular, and I won't talk long on this one, I promise, because this, this, this is where it takes a left turn on heavy for just a moment. But we'll, we'll hit it and get off. But um, so I did a pair of illustrations. So, you know, like a diptych, right, you know, a pair of illustrations of a mm. uh, an Apollo era spacesuit and then a old like 1970s era, like deep dive submergence diving suit. So it's a spacesuit and a diving suit. And so, you know, in classic fashion, I basically to do the spacesuit, you know, I researched all these old documents from ILC Dover. That's the company that designed the Apollo spacesuit for the Apollo program. So I was able to, you know, go through the catacombs of the Internet and find some old research documents and construct it again from scratch, you know, for my own edification efforts and for the diving suit, same process.
1: Hmm.
2: But this work in particular was really, really vital Um, Because I started it in response to uh, the death and passing of my firstborn son. And so in 2019, we endured uh, an extraordinary and traumatic loss. And like most artists, like most designers, like most creative professionals, you know, one of the ways that you cope with real strife and challenge, you know, is through your creativity. You know, it helps you understand your environment. It helps you, you know, put your mark on something. It's just, it's a way to process and it's a way to cope and it's a way to understand. And it's a way to just, I don't know, just do the next right thing and to Hmm. put one foot in front of the other and simply do something constructive with this really scary, terrible, dark place you find yourself. After my son, William passed away, there was this notion in my mind of, you know, needing to be armored against hostile unknown because hmm. that's where you are. That's where you are, you know. And so all of a sudden there was this image of this spaceman and this diver and this beautiful dichotomy of, again, this man-made, designed, intentionally crafted with great love and care and focus and innovation that was armor against deeply hostile dichotomies of unknown. You know, one is designed for the greatest of the greatest heights in space, you know, be able to withstand vacuum. And on the flip side, you know, the diving suit able to withstand unimaginable pressure. And both of these things, both of these suits of armor are designed to withstand places that human beings can't exist. They're designed to withstand places human beings aren't designed to exist, that they were not made for, but they are both black crushing voids. And so basically it was these two things that fell right in line with the type of artwork that I had been creating for a long time. And the day after we lost William, it just literally came like that, you know, creative flash and spark that Mm -hmm. this needed to be made. I needed to make this and I needed to make it right, right now. And so basically it was that work, this, you know, nor height, nor depth idea, this spaceman and this diver, these two paired pieces became this piece of work that ultimately was the thing that when I stumbled onto art pop, you know, I just felt this, sense. I was like, okay, well I made this thing and no one's ever seen it. Like, you know, my wife had seen it and my mother had seen it Yeah, <laughs> literally, you know, like yeah. that was my audience. That was my audience. i had shown it to my wife, Anna. I had shown it to my mother and I was like, you know what? Like, I think this is kind of cool. Maybe I should just submit this and just see what happens. And I'm not mm-hmm. an artist. I'm, I'm, I'm not really part of this world because I'm a designer and would real artists ever accept a designer? Like, it's just not a community that I really know that well. You know, it's like, again, like I, I, I'm i worried that I'd have to stick my pinky out. And that's not me. <laughs> right. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to submit it and just see what happens, whatever. But the work felt really important and it was very personal. And I was like, I feel like why wouldn't I at least share this one thing? And who knows? We'll see. And as luck would have it, you know, Art Pop accepted it among you know a, a significant number of submissions, and it is currently emblazed on a billboard here in Charlotte. Hmm. And what's really amazingly beautiful is no one knows what it's about, and that's kind of the point, you know. It's like it's kind of this vibrant, positive, beautiful, bright thing that's really, really exceptional and exciting, and. I'm proud of it because I like it because of course I like what I'm making, but it was a completely different animal to think that anyone else would like it. And that was a new idea. That was a new idea that anyone else might like it. All of a sudden people are calling me an artist and that's new. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like that's completely new. And this term that I've been afraid of for so, so long, I'm having to kind of come to grips with, but I think that's kind of amazing. You know, it's like, I have to, it forces me to look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm a designer. I've always been a designer, but you know what? Maybe I'm an artist too. And I think I need to not be as afraid of that term as I have been in the past. Mm -hmm. And so now it's just been this thing to where I've been attempting to share more and more of that two dimensional work, you know, in addition to the three dimensional work that's, you know, been part of who I am since forever. So it's a, it's a wild adventure. It's a wild (laughs) adventure. Gosh,
0: that's, Incredible. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Gosh. So if I'm not mistaken, you have two billboards around Charlotte, don't you?
2: Yes. There's the one physical, you know, printed, you know, physically printed billboard that is there 24 seven because it's, you know, a printed medium. And then there's a number else. I think, I think truly, I think we're up to probably six other billboards in the Charlotte metro area Hmm. that, you know, are digital and are also showing the work. So there's also um, a printed, like the newsstands in uptown Charlotte, like going down Tryon Street oh. here and here in the city. Um, also, uh, one of them, you know, I think it's uh, Tryon and Fourth Street has my artwork on it. And that's mm-hmm. really exciting, you know, and that's like at ground level on the newsstand. And then there's the big billboard and then there's all of these other digital billboards throughout the area that, you know, are cycling and, but showing my art on a, on a, you know, on a cycle, it's, it's a lot. And so it means that what pop is doing is really, really special. And it's really, really important just as an idea, as a cause, as an organization, like what they're doing is really excellent. Um, You know, because of that is all of a sudden they are offering me exposure which is one thing all itself but more importantly it's like they're changing a little bit of how i see myself hmm. and that is you know a gift that is immeasurable but but yeah but as a clarifying question yes yeah. so it's <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there's a it's on a lot of stuff right now in fact it was even published in a local magazine just last week huh. and so it's been in print now a few times and it's in digital a bunch of places and it's almost hard to keep up. All I can say is that what's really exciting is it's, I I feel like every, every few days there's something new that it's being featured in, which is just Mm. beyond belief.
0: Yeah. Yeah. One, I, I love your artwork. Um, Mm. and it's fascinating hearing your kind of like the dichotomy of, of, of your, of your self identity in regards to wanting to be, referred to as an artist or not but i think that that drives home the point of it's really hard in my opinion to gatekeep who is an artist and who isn't because i think yeah you know what, what i would hope that people get yeah. out of this is that there's artistry in a lot of people and just because you don't have I think a, everyone yeah you know because you don't you know just because you don't have a you know, you're not a museum curator, you, you're you not a, uh, you know, you don't have a, a bachelor's in studio art it doesn't mean you're not an artist. It means that, you know, for instance, with the example of William and, uh, you know, the result of that being these, these creations is that, you know, art is a form of self-expression and it is a form of, and it, and it can mean a lot of different things to different people, but ultimately for at the artist level, there's a lot of emotion going through that. And I think you know, whether it be podcasting or poetry or <laughs> art, you know, I, I think they're they're all they're all mediums in which to deliver that message. And so, I, I think it's phenomenal what you're doing now. um And I, I love seeing like the drone shots of uh, of like your <laughs> billboard on South yeah, on South it's, Boulevard in yeah. It's super freaking cool. <laughs> <laughs> Adam is that I
2: can be careful to not nerd out too long about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Adam is just trying to make the case for our submission for Art Pop next year <laughs> oh, to become cool, the man. first audio billboard for a, a <laughs> <Yes>. podcast episode <laughs> that will keep everybody out of Charlotte is just <laughs> one of our podcast episodes. Blazing, oh, I think you
2: could do something amazing, it could be a beautiful <laughs> waveform, you know. It's like, oh, think, oh my gosh, now oh my I'm gonna, yeah, we could totally do that. Yeah, i think it's like. Uh, that's the beauty of it. I think, yeah, it's it's a really inclusive project that these people are doing. And yeah, yeah that's absolutely. awesome. It's for huh. everyone. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, awesome. Well, David, uh, we've taken a ton of your time. So thank you for speaking to us. Um, yeah. You know, seriously. Very
2: patient with a lot of listening. I said, I. <laughs> this
0: has been <laughs> uh, amazing. Thank uh, you. Yeah. We, we want to give an opportunity to kind of plug stuff. So we'll do that here, uh, here, here in a second, but is there anything else you want to, you want to mention or, or, you know, thoughts that things that we did not ask you that you wanted to share? Uh, Um, no, no, what, what, anything else that, that comes to mind when, when you talk about your journey and your identity as an artist, as an industrial designer, as a designer, you know, any, any parting words that you want to leave us with, if you
2: will. Sure. Um, I think I would just have to say that, you know, it's like, I just, I wish there were so many things that I could tell, you know, my childhood self. And so it's like, if there's anyone who, you know, struggles with being caught in this rift, you know, between feeling highly creative and highly technical and feeling like there's not a place for you, there really, really, really is. There really is.
1: Hmm.
2: And so If there's nothing else, I just hope that that's something I can really impart, you know, is that the the life and career that I've been very, very fortunate time and time and time again to be able to do my best to make good decisions to carefully cultivate, you know, is really it exists like it exists. And so, Hmm. you know, there's no such thing as perfect. And there's many, many sad days, many, many hard days. But I will say. Is that I wish I could tell, you know, seven-year-old me, eight-year-old me that, you know, if you are really and actually split left brain, right brain, there really is a place for you. And there really is a place for everyone, I think. I really think that. And so if nothing else, I believe that everyone is creative. Mm. It's just whether or not they're recognized for it or, you know, how that muscle is exercised. But I think it's in everyone. I think extraordinary innovation is within everyone. And I think for those who feel caught between these worlds, like I said, of of you know wanting to be really creative but then also wanting to be really analytical and technical, there are just no rules. There are no rules. You can absolutely be both and you can absolutely build a fulfilling life being both.
0: Well, David, once again, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, um, thank before- you. Before we before we start to wrap this up, um, you know, uh, you have your social media handles. You know, what 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 would you like to to uh, kind of plug?
2: Ooh, Oh, man, <laughs> this makes me feel like a proper influencer. Ooh. <laughs> what do I want? That's to what plug? we strive for. <laughs> I yes. plug anything in my life. Uh,
0: where should people go to find out more about your work and and what mm, you do yeah. and so on and so forth?
2: Yeah, well, I'm. I'm really easy to find, which is very lucky. So what's great is um, there's not too many people out there named Bolfin. So if you're Googling, (laughs) even just loosely Googling David Bolfin, chances are you're going to find me. But my (laughs) handle on Instagram um, is at Bolfin. So that's at B-U-L-F-I-N. And my website is Bolfin.co. So B-U-L-F-I-N dot C-O. Awesome.
1: Yeah. And of course, we'll be sending out uh, posts and reposts and stuff and definitely sending our listeners your way because people, have, more people have got to see this. This is awesome.
2: Oh, thanks, man. I, I crazy yeah. appreciate it. That's really cool. Of
0: course. Uh, Dan, you want to hop into recommendations? Sure. Yeah, let's yeah. do it. Right. So so my, my boss introduced me to a new uh, musical artist that I had not heard of before. him. But this Michael- guy called Beethoven?
2: <laughs> I hear the yeah. fifth is actually okay. Yeah. We're almost revolutionary.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Adam. Uh, no, no, no. It's fine. Keep making your jokes, Daniel. Keep making your jokes. Gosh. Um, uh, no, it's an uh, artist named Michael Kiwanaka um uh k uh, the last name is k k-i-w-a-n-u-k-a and he's got um i just his, his whole kind of breadth of works is really interesting you know he pulls inspiration from like radiohead and nirvana uh, but he's got like a little bit of r in there um, he's actually signed to mumford and son's label and he mm-hmm. toured in a supporting role to with, uh, Adele. So like this really, I wouldn't say different sound, but just a very unique sound, um, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, so, so Michael Kiwanaka, I, you know, uh, he's got, uh, uh, you know, a couple albums and a number of LPs out that I would highly recommend listening to. So yeah.
2: Cool. Nice. Yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah, thanks Adam.
0: David, are you ready now? <laughs> <laughs>
2: like obviously, pandemic-wise, right? Like there's a little bit more television happening probably than is normal. Right. Um, but <laughs> I have been crazy enjoying uh The Expanse on mm-hmm. Amazon Prime. Uh so huge uh sci-fi nerd for sure. Like I've always been a big Star Trek guy. Mm. Um, but this is totally different. So if you haven't seen it or haven't heard of it, definitely check it out because it's like the first science fiction I've ever seen that seems to get like basic space flight right. So again, it goes back to <laughs> goes back to those aerospace days, and I'm looking at it. I'm like, oh, okay, like. They're, they're getting like most of the orbital <laughs> mechanics right. And that's actually really amazing. So,
1: you can um, you can put your complaint card down <laughs> and enjoy exactly, the TV yeah, show. It's like, yes,
2: there's, no, there's no phasers or warp drives or things like that. But <laughs> it's this really amazing drama about the politics in the near future of like mankind um, in the solar system. So there's like fully established colonies on Mars, fully established mm. colonies on the moon fully established colonies out in like the outer asteroid belt. And it's basically this almost political drama of like the power struggles between these different, you know, cultural human entities and how their cultures over generations evolve. It's crazy interesting, really, really well written. The world building is insane. And, uh, and if you're, and if you're super nerdy and like space stuff like me, uh, you'd probably enjoy it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've been meaning to watch the show and also read the book series. The show is based on.
2: Yeah. Um, and That's this may be part. the, yeah.
1: Yeah. This may be the kick in the butt to uh, do that. Cause I've heard nothing but good things about both. So nice. Uh, and finally, Daniel, what um, you got. So <laughs> show me what you got. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> so he turns into a pickle, but he's a scientist. <laughs> oh, um, <trick. laughs> um, so I'm going to recommend, and Adam, this kind of relates to one of our earlier episodes with uh, our good friend, John, but um, with the punk rock episode, he uh, did with us. One of the artists he put on his playlist was the artist uh, war on women. Who came out with an album in late 2020 called "Wonderful Hell"? That I have been—I just recently found out they released a new album and have been rocking to it uh, quite a bit. It is like really awesome hardcore feminist punk rock that uh, is—it's amazing. Uh, It is really, really good. Um, So that is War on Women, uh, their album "Wonderful Hell." So please check that out because it's very, very good. Thank you so much, David.
2: This was a lot of fun. Oh, you're so welcome. I said, this is the definition of a captive audience.
0: Uh, Adam, do you want to quickly run through our social media stuff? Sure. For uh, Everyone can reach us on Instagram at Passion Fruits Podcast. You can find us at Twitter by searching Passion Fruits Podcast or our handle Passion Fruits P2. I yes. <laughs> got it right this time. <laughs> uh, you, you can find us on Facebook at Passion Fruits Podcast. You can send us an email at passionfruitspodcast at gmail.com. And then we have a blog. And I'm going to screw this one up. It's passionfruitspodcast.blogspot.com.
1: Oh, dot blog splot <laughs> that's, that's what whole... your dog does in the backyard a blog splot it's passionfruitspodcast.home.blog
0: Adam. okay dot home dot blog yeah, I, you know what I got a twitter <laughs> handle. I got a twitter <laughs> Twitter handle right after three years of doing this uh, give me <laughs> another three years for our blog that I'd never <laughs> contribute would... to I was gonna say
1: you'd think with how many posts you write you would remember <laughs> and you would think with how many posts i write i would remember it, but, oh boy all we right. can do our a whole nother episode about blogging yes oh yeah all, <laughs> right. <laughs> all right um well uh, thank you again so much david this was wonderful
2: no great all to right. meet you. thanks for having me on
0: yeah all right all right, all right. thanks everyone talk to yeah. you next time bye Let's go.